This morning, I want to start kind of a series of talks that we're going to be uh, going over over the next few weeks about our inner world, about what's going on inside of us. Uh, There's this moment in scripture where Jesus is talking to religious leaders and the religious leaders of the day, uh, people didn't talk back to them. That wasn't something that you did. It was very much a faux pas, but, but Jesus looks at these religious leaders and he calls them hypocrites. And he says they're hypocrites because they, they clean the outside of the dish, but the inside of the dish is filthy. And he's using this language to kind of basically communicate that you do all the right things on the outside. You go through all the rituals, you know all the ceremonies, you know all the prayers, you show up for church, but on the inside, there is something that is not right. And how many of you know that what is going on inside of you will always find its way out? It may take a while. You may be able to kind of keep up the ruse for a while, but at some point, what is going on inside of you will always find its way out of you. A few years ago, uh, I read a book that was a biography on the life of Vincent Van Gogh. And I was blown away by his story. I had always enjoyed his art. And so I had heard that this was a great book, but it was like 800 pages. And you got to really be committed before you dive into a book that is 800 pages. But we went on this long summer trip and I decided to take it with us and I could not put the book down. I got about 600 pages in though. And I literally found myself Googling to find out if what I was reading was true because it was so wild. It was so much different than what I had imagined his life was like. And I fell in love with this book. I fell in love with the idea of his story, tragic as it was. And so when we saw that the Beyond Van Gogh experience was coming to Sarasota, I was so excited and months ago made plans to go. And this week, Kristen and I finally went And if you have a chance, you should go, but it's this amazing giant room where they use this projection technology to basically project his paintings in the entire room, floor to ceiling, all the walls are covered like one painting at a time. And if there's a windmill in the painting or if there's water in the painting, they add this slight motion to it and this slight sound to it. And they literally achieve this goal of making you feel like you are inside this work of art that you are standing inside this gigantic work of art. But before you get into that room, you walk through kind of this maze of plaques that, that tell you about his life. And I was reminded what I had read so many years ago, which was just how tragic his life was. That this life that brought such great beauty, this life that brought such great art that we know today was actually quite a tragic and sad life. And the thing about Van Gogh is he wrote a lot of letters. He had a brother who lived far away from him. And so we have a written account of exactly how he was feeling and exactly what he was thinking. And what you realize all throughout his life is that he was riddled with worry, that he was constantly worrying that he wasn't in the right place, that he wasn't on the right path, that he wasn't doing the right thing. And he's always writing his brother. He began his life trying to be a preacher and that path did not fit him. He knew that he actually had this deep love for art. And so he decided to be an art dealer. But as time went on being an art dealer, he realized that what he really wanted to do was not sell art, but create art. And so finally he finds his purpose. He finds his passion and he gives his entire life to actually painting and creating art, to actually creating and doing what it was that he always wanted to do. And you would think that when he kind of dialed in on this purpose, you would think that when he found this thing that he was created for, the worry would go away, that the worry was tied to this idea that he couldn't find his purpose. And yet what we realized through his letters to his brother is that, is that when he found his purpose, the worry didn't go away. What he worried about just changed. 
because he has these frantic letters writing to his brother about how his paintings are not good enough, that his lines are not good enough, that his color is not accurate enough. And he gets to this point in his life where he is so worried and so distraught that he literally cuts off his own ear and eventually ends his whole life. And worry may not have brought you to a place where it would cause you to harm yourself, or it may not bring you to such a place that, that you would actually end your life. But I can guarantee you that worry, when you allow it in your inner world, will take life from you. That when you are worrying, you are not truly living life the way God designed you to live. That when you are steeped in worry, you are, you are focusing on the wrong things. And eventually, you may be able to hold on to that worry inside of you for a while, but eventually that worry will come out of you. And I was struck walking through this exhibit how someone could create such works of beauty and also be so entrenched in such tragedy, in such worry. And it's amazing how we as humans can kind of hold these two seemingly opposing ideas together. We can, we can step out in a moment of faith and yet be full of fear. We can make a decision rooted in courage and then immediately feel regret and uncertainty. It's like we can hold these two things together. And I think honestly, in the Christian culture, sometimes, sometimes we kind of reinforce this idea by, by thinking that it's either faith over fear. Like it's gotta be one or the other. You, if, you're, if you're experiencing faith, you cannot experience fear. When in reality, we experience two opposing emotions all of the time. And I'm a bit of a worrier myself. I grew up with a mom who she was a little worrisome as well, and I think I inherited the worrying gene. And I'm a thinker. I stay in my head a lot. I think about things. And when you think about things a lot, it's easy to think about something to worry about. And then once you think of the thing to worry about, it's easy to think about that thing a lot. It's easy to just spin that thing around in your head and think of all of the possible ways that this worry could come true. And this is something that I've personally dealt with for a long time. And I can tell you that as a worrier, my least favorite piece of advice is don't worry. I cannot stand when people say to me, don't worry. I have never been sick before and someone says, what's wrong with you? And I say, oh, I'm nauseous. And they say, oh, don't be. Don't be nauseous. No, I, I, I don't like when people say, don't worry. And that's why it is extremely frustrating to me that Jesus, when he begins his ministry, starts almost at the very beginning by telling his followers not to worry. He, he tells them not to worry. In Matthew chapter, 25, or chapter 6, verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the fields grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So again, he says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, yet again, 
Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble for itself. Now, there are a few things in there that I can quickly get on board with. Each day has enough worry. I can completely agree with that. Tomorrow will certainly have enough worry for tomorrow. I can get on board with that. I might even be able to get on board with don't worry about what you eat and drink and wear. Because I think a lot of times we, we get caught up in those things when really we know they're going to work themselves out. We live a life where we know we're probably not going to actually go hungry. Our worries about what we are going to eat are more specific, like where exactly and what exactly are we going to eat. There are very few of us who are actually concerned about whether or not we are going to eat. But Jesus doesn't start with don't worry about what you wear and what you eat. He starts with don't worry about your life. And I'm like, what else is there to worry about? If I could not worry about my life, I wouldn't be worried about anything. He starts with the biggest possible thing he could start with. Do not worry about your life. And then it seems he works backwards and goes into the smaller things. And I wish that he had begun with the smaller things. I wish that he had kind of worked his way up. Don't worry about what you wear. I'm like, okay, I can get by with that. Don't worry about what you can eat. Okay, I guess I can trust you with that. But don't worry about your life seems impossible because we are very good at worrying about our lives. We're so good at worrying about our lives that we often choose to not only worry about our lives, but worry about other people's lives. Like, like we can worry about what's going on in other people's lives. My daughter, Olivia, she's only two years old, and she doesn't talk a ton, but she's just getting into where she really has a, a lot of words for things. But she's at that age where she'll use one word for a lot of things. And so somewhere along the line, because I'm sure at some point we told her we were cutting something in half, anytime she uses the word cut, she uses the word half. And so anytime she wants something cut, she points to it and says half. And even if she gets a cut, she calls it a half. She just says half for cut because she doesn't have a lot of experience with cuts. And so she only knows the word half is representative of the word cut. And so she just fills that in anywhere that she would use the word cut. But as she grows up, she will find that we actually have an entire language for different kinds of cuts that you don't just cut yourself. You might slice or you might dice or you might fillet something or you might chop something or you might shred something. All of these things are different things for the word cut because the more experience with something you have, the more language you have for it. And that's why I think it's no mistake that we have in the English language more than a hundred synonyms for worry because we have a lot of experience with worry. And so we have had to get nuanced with our language of how we express our worry. The word worry is not enough. We need to get a little more specific with our worry. And so we have this broad language for it. And yet Jesus says, do not worry. He says, do not worry about your life. And I find for myself, I not only worry about my life, but I worry about the lives of my family. I worry about the lives of my friends. And specifically, I worry about the lives of my children. There was a few years ago where my daughter Bella was extremely sick and she was really sick for a day or two. And, you know, generally a, a child will get sick and then get better. And it's always concerning when a child gets sick and gets sicker. 
And she was getting more and more sick and she was having more and more symptoms. And it seemed like the longer time went on, the more sick she got. And so we called the doctor and, and I have a history in my family of type one diabetes, where essentially your, your pancreas will shut down and it causes a lot of issues that are lifelong issues. And my father had it and one of my nieces now has it. And, and it had not yet dawned on me that the symptoms that she was experiencing could be symptoms of this disease. And then we called the doctor and in the questions that they were asking to set up the appointment, they asked about family history. And the moment they asked about family history, I immediately remembered that these symptoms could be symptoms of this disease that has plagued my family. And how many of you know, it only takes that one thought, it only takes that one thought to give you something to worry about for the rest of the day. And so I, I'm immediately focused on this and I, I'm, I'm overwhelmed quite honestly with worry. And, and I call my mom, I, I, I'm, I call my parents kind of, kind of hoping for them to, you know, give me some reasons about why this is probably not the case. And have you ever called somebody and expressed your concern and they are doing their best to help you, but you can just tell they are also concerned like it actually has the opposite effect on you than you had hoped. And, and they didn't say anything really to stoke the worries. It was the things that they were not saying that were making me concerned. And I could tell that, that they too were now just curious where the test would go and what would happen. And, and I was so concerned about her. And there's this moment in scripture where there is a father who is concerned for his daughter, who, who is quite honestly extremely sick and she's close to death. And we pick up the story in Luke chapter 8, verses, verse 40. It says, When Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. Now, just in those two verses, we know that Jairus is extremely, extremely desperate in this moment because they tell us right out of the gate that he is a synagogue leader. And synagogue leaders at this time did not have much faith, did not have much hope for what Jesus was doing. They did not appreciate his message at this time. And so for a synagogue ruler to come to Jesus, that would have been a pretty big deal. But beyond that, as a synagogue ruler, we know that Jairus would have had a lot of things that other people didn't have in this time. He would, have, he would have had status. He would have had a position. He would have been known in the community. He would have had faith. Do you ever see those people in your life that it just seems like they are immune to problems? It seems like they have everything together. It seems like they are completely provided for above and beyond anything they could ever need. This would have been Jairus unless, and, and yet he's at the feet of Jesus begging for him to come to his house because his daughter was dying. And, and Jesus goes with him. It says, as he was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. 
Then he said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, this is an amazing moment because it says that the crowds are crushing around Jesus, which means a lot of people are making contact with Jesus. And yet one person receives a miracle from Jesus. And I think it's a good reminder for us that that contact with Jesus is not the same as connecting with Jesus. That out of this crowd of people that was in contact with Jesus, one person connected with Jesus. And I think a lot of times we orient our lives around contact with Jesus, that that we will show up to church, that we will read our Bibles, that we will pray, that we will do all of the things that, that we are meant to do, and yet somehow we don't break through to that actually connecting with Jesus. But see, this woman showed up with an intention, with an intention and an expectation that all she needed to do was connect with Jesus and he would meet her need. That if she could just connect with Jesus, she would be healed. And she, in that moment, receives her healing. It says that he made her well. And maybe you're one of those in this place today that that you feel like you've made a lot of contact with Jesus, but you've never actually experienced the power of Jesus. And there's this one phrase that stands out to me so strong in this story and in this moment. Because this woman touches the hem of Jesus' garment and it says she is immediately healed. She's immediately made whole. And then Jesus says, who is it that touched me? And his disciples ask the right question, which is how could we possibly know who it is that touched you? There are many people that are making contact with you and yet Jesus knows a difference. And then this line has always stood out to me. It says, seeing that she could not go unnoticed. Seeing that she could not go unnoticed. See, this woman, because of her need, because of the life that she had lived, because of this issue of bleeding, she would never have been allowed to have contact with anyone. She would have never been in the synagogue to worship. She never would have sat around a table and had a meal with people. For the last 12 years of her life, she would have been living in isolation as she dealt with this medical issue, which the Bible tells us she had spent all of her money trying to solve. So what we know about her is that she was an outsider who had no money. She was a woman who in this culture would have been looked down upon. Even further, she was a woman who who could not bear children. She, to the people around her, had no use, no value. And yet in this moment with Jesus, she realizes that with Jesus, she cannot go unnoticed. Unnoticed is all she's ever known. Unnoticed is all she's ever experienced. She has become used to living a life of being unnoticed. But in this moment, she realizes that she cannot go unnoticed. And I love what it says about the character of Jesus that he stopped in this moment because he did not have to stop. Jesus did not have to stop and ask who touched him. This woman had already received her miracle. She already got what she came for. She already was healed of the issue that had been plaguing her. But I think what it reminds us of in this moment is that Jesus' power healed her, but his compassion acknowledged her. That, That Jesus doesn't just heal our needs, he sees our needs. 
that he acknowledges who we are, that he acknowledges beyond just the need that we have, he acknowledges who we are. And he says, daughter, go in peace. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And I I think as you read this story that, yes, the healing would have brought great relief to her, but I think in many ways it was the being seen and the being acknowledged that brought her the peace. That she was allowed to walk out in peace because she knew that Jesus not only cared for her enough to heal her, but that he cared for her enough to acknowledge her. And I think even in our own lives, sometimes we can get so caught up in the work that we can get so caught up in doing what God wants us to do and not seeing who God wants us to see. That that we can try to meet the needs of people but not actually see those people. Jesus is intentional about taking the time not just to heal this woman, but to make sure that she does not go unnoticed. And I wonder who in our lives we have contact with that is continuing to go unnoticed to us. That, that who in our lives are we serving but we are not seeing? Who in our lives are, are we allowing to be in our sphere but we are not actually seeing them? He says, daughter, go. Your faith has healed you. But remember, this story is not actually about this woman. We did not begin this story with this woman. We, we began with Jairus, the synagogue leader who was worried about his daughter, who, who, who is 12 years old and is extremely sick. And I imagine that in that moment, he was caught up with what Jesus just did. He saw as Jesus just healed somebody who had, had been sick. And then I think it's no mistake that Jesus, in acknowledging this woman, says, daughter. That he says, Daughter. Because you know that did not go unheard to Jairus, who has come to Jesus asking for help for his daughter. And you know that in this moment, Jairus hears the story of this woman who is sick for 12 years, and Jesus heals her and calls her daughter. He can't help but think of his own daughter who has been sick for 12 years. And I can't imagine how stirred his faith must have been in that moment, that that if Jesus can do this for this woman, then we are on the right track. Jesus is coming to my house to do the same thing. But have you ever been so full of faith and so full of expectation, and then you just get that piece of news that seems like it crashes it all to the ground? That that you think that everything is actually looking up, that you think everything is actually going to be okay, and, and then that one piece of news comes along to crash those hopes and crash those fears. Because see, Jesus said, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And any moment of excitement that Jairus would have had in those words was immediately dashed because it says, while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And so in this moment where Jairus finally has some hope. Jesus is actually coming to his house. Jesus is actually healing on the way to his house. But now suddenly Jairus' daughter is dead and his friends are telling him, don't even bother. Don't even bother. I wonder if you've ever had a situation that seemed so bleak that you didn't even think it was worth bothering anymore. I wonder if you've ever had a situation that seemed so bleak that you thought it was time to let it go. I think it's interesting in this moment that 
Jairus' friends are aware of what has just happened. They're aware that Jesus has just healed somebody sick for 12 years, and yet when his daughter dies, they say, don't bother. It's almost as if they believe that Jesus can heal an unhealthy person, but they do not believe that Jesus can raise a dead person. And maybe in this moment, you can identify, like, like maybe you're thinking about your situation and you think, my situation has already moved beyond unhealthy. My situation is dead. My marriage has moved beyond unhealthy. My marriage is dead. My, my business is beyond unhealthy. It is dead. My relationships are beyond unhealthy. They are dead. And I think we all reach this moment where we think, if Jesus was going to work, if God was going to do something, it would have already happened. That at this moment, it's dead, it's over, it's done. And I can't help but wonder if in this moment, Jairus is suddenly feeling like this woman got the miracle that he had asked for. That they were on the way to his house to heal his daughter, and now maybe this was the only miracle of the day. Maybe Jesus is only healing this one woman. Like, did she just skip the line? Like, I was, I was next up. Jesus was going to do a work in my life, and yet now he's done a work in her life, and now I'm being told that my daughter is dead. In fact, if I was Jairus, I know what I would be thinking. I would be thinking, Jesus, maybe if you didn't stop to get this extra information that seemed completely unnecessary about who touched you, even though they had already been healed, maybe if you hadn't taken the time to do that, we would have made it to my house in time to heal my daughter. And yet now, she's dead. And I wonder if you've ever lived in a season where you felt like everybody else's prayers were, be, were being answered while yours were falling on deaf ears. I wonder if you've ever lived in a situation where you longed to be in a lifelong relationship and yet you were always the bridesmaid. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you long to have a child of your own and yet all you get is invites to baby shower after baby shower while you cannot conceive. There are these moments in life where it just feels like it's working out for everybody else but us. That God is answering everyone else's prayers but ours. And Jairus' friends in this moment tell him, don't bother. Just quit. Just give up. Your daughter is not just unhealthy. She is dead. But in this moment, Jesus can almost feel the momentum shift. He can almost feel the faith starting to drop because the moment that he said that the friend says, your daughter is dead, it says, hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe she will be healed. She will be healed. And this word that he uses there for healed is this word that means she will be made well. And it doesn't just mean she will be made well physically. It means that she will be made well emotionally and spiritually and physically, that in her entire being, she will be made well. And this is the same word that he just used when he looked at the woman who touched the hem of his garment and said, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the play on words there is clear that Jesus was essentially telling Jairus, what I just did for her, I'm about to do for you. And I think that so often we look at the miracles in other people's lives, we look at the answered prayers in other people's lives, and we feel like that means there is less room for God to work in our lives, when really we need to look at those moments and realize that what God is doing in the lives of others, he can do in our life as well. 
that how God has moved in the lives of others, he can move in our lives as well. How God has healed in the lives of others, he can heal in our lives as well. How God has restored in the lives of others, he can restore in our lives as well. And he says, your daughter will be well. Don't let what I did for her cause you to lose hope. Let it raise your level of hope. Let it raise your level of faith. And then it says that they went to the house, and when he arrived at the house of Jairus, Jesus did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. A few weeks back, we we went on a road trip, and um, I've become the type of person that really prepares the car for a road trip. Uh, I'm not mechanical, but I will do all of the things I know how to do to make sure that the car is going to function for the trip that I'm about to go on. And so I'll get the tires checked, and I'll make sure there's gas, and I'll make sure the oil is good. And, and, and this time, I remembered that our windshield wipers were absolutely atrocious, that every time it rained, I would turn the windshield wipers on, and it would actually make the situation worse than it was before somehow. I don't know how. But the problem with windshield wipers, at least for me, maybe you're very good at these things, the problem is that I never remember that I need the new windshield wipers until it's actually raining. And then I think I need to get these new windshield wipers, and then I don't, and then it rains again, and I'm like, oh yeah, I need to get these new windshield wipers. I had probably been doing that for about a year. And I happened to remember that we needed the windshield wipers on the trip, so I was very excited. I got new windshield wipers. I changed them. I felt very accomplished, and I was like, I'm going to take this an extra step. I'm going to go the extra mile, and I bought myself some Rain-X. And I put the Rain-X on the windshield. I saw next to the Rain-X, they now have Fog-X. You put it on the inside, the windshield does not fog up when the rain hits it and the temperature changes, and it's like you are seeing so clear. And I was so excited when I saw on our trip that one of the days we were driving, it was going to be rainy. I usually don't like driving in the rain, but I was like, I'm going to test this out. I have gone above and beyond. I have windshield wipers. I have rain X. I have fog X. And let me tell you something. It started raining and I was like, I am going to just wait. I'm, I'm going to wait and see how long before I even need to turn the windshield wipers on. I'm going to let the rain X do the work. And I can tell you, it worked really well. It worked really well. And, and, and the rain just literally peeled off of the windshield. It was incredible. There was no fog. I could see so clearly. And it was such a contrast to how, what I was used to driving with because usually I would turn on the windshield wipers and immediately just remember that my neglect of my vehicle was now worse than I had expected and that I could not see anything. But this is the thing is that it does not matter how good your vision is if what you are looking through is obstructed. It doesn't matter how good your vision is if the windshield is completely covered in rain. It doesn't matter how good your vision is if it's all fogged up. You are not going to be able to see through like you should. And I think it's interesting in this moment that Jesus does not allow anybody in the house except Peter, James, and John, which means there was a whole group of people that the Bible tells us are wailing and upset it tells us that this group of people literally says to Jesus uh, that, that she is dead. Why are you bothering? Jesus says she's sleeping and they laugh at him. And he says, get out. He says, you cannot be in here. And so they had to experience the, the miracle that Jesus is about to perform just looking through the window because they were looking at it through the window of their worry. They were looking at the situation through an obscured view. They were looking at the situation through, through a window that was covered in worry. And this is the thing about worry. Worry will not separate you from Jesus. It will not separate you from Jesus. 
but it will, it will make you unaware of his presence in your situation. It will take up the mental space that should be focusing on what Jesus is about to do. And, and worry will cause you to focus on the problem. They're focused on the fact that she is dead. And it's no mistake that Jesus says, the only people coming in with me are these parents and Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John were the very first people to start following Jesus. And these parents were the ones who had the most love for that child, for that situation. And can I just tell you, when you are up against a circumstance that has you worried, that has you concerned, that you think has brought you to the end of your rope, you need to be careful who you allow in the room with you. You need to be careful who you allow in the room with you. You need people like Jesus, who, who you need people who have walked with you the longest and love you the most. You need people who have walked with you the longest and have loved you the most. See, so often the problem with our moments of worry is who we allow in the room with us. And can I just tell you, when you step into that doctor's office to get that report, you better be careful who you have in the room with you. When, when, when you're starting to try to repair your relationship or repair your marriage, you better be careful who you pick up the phone and talk to. You better be careful who you let in the room. When you, are, when you are entering a situation that causes you to worry, evaluate the room and put anyone out who has not been with you, does not love you, and does not have the faith that you have. There are moments in my life where my wife Kristen can tell by my line of thinking that I am extremely worried. And a question that she will sometimes ask me is who have you been talking to? Who have you been talking to? Because it's, it's amazing how who you've talked to and who you allow into your room will change your level of worry. See, so often the level of worry you have for a situation is directly related to who you've allowed in the room. The level of worry that you have is directly related to who you've allowed into the situation. And Jesus puts everybody out except Peter, James, and John. And he says, only these who have come with me the longest are going to be with me. It says, all the people were wailing and mourning. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child, get up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood. Then Jesus told her, told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone. In this moment, Jesus says some very intentional things after he heals this girl. First and foremost, he, he heals her, and in the presence of her parents, he says, my child, get up. See, sometimes I think the level of our worry is related to how much responsibility we think we have for the situation. See, Jairus and that mom thought Jesus was there to heal their child, but Jesus was there to heal his child. Jesus took responsibility for the moment. And he didn't say this child. He didn't say their child. He said, my child, get up. And what you need to understand about the situations that you are worrying about, the situations that are taking up space in your head is that you are God's child, that your worries are his concern, that he will take care of the things that you are concerned about, that he will take care of the things that you are worried about, that he is more concerned and loves you more than you could ever know. 
And that in those moments, he takes the responsibility when we are tempted to take the responsibility because we become overwhelmed with worry when we feel like it's all our responsibility. We become overwhelmed with worry when we think it's our problem alone. This is why in Philippians chapter four, verses six and seven, the writer says, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, pray. In everything, pray. Don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, pray. And we get that reversed where we are anxious about everything because we pray about nothing. And so we get those things reversed because we focus on the worry. We focus on the anxiety when we should be focused on, as Jairus and this mother did, taking it to Jesus, taking it to him. But then my favorite and most curious thing that Jesus says after he heals this young girl is give her something to eat. Give her something to eat. And that line just stuck out to me, even as I was reading the story this week, give her something to eat. Like if I was Jesus, this crowd has followed to see if I'll do what I said I would do. And then when we get there, there's already a crowd telling me I can't do what I've said I'm going to do. So we've got the convergence of two crowds expecting and anticipating whether or not Jesus can actually do something. If I had just healed that girl, I'd have been like, get up on my shoulders. We're about to take a victory lap. We're about to go show everybody that I just did what they said I couldn't do. I'd be like, I thought you she was dead. I thought, is this the girl you said was dead like two minutes ago? Because I don't know. It's funny. She's alive now. Isn't that weird? Isn't that odd that she's alive now? And yet you said she couldn't be alive. And yet Jesus doesn't take the victory lap. He says, give her something to eat. Because see, when Jesus works in your life, when Jesus brings resurrection into your life, when Jesus works in a situation of your life, you've got to feed that miracle more than you feed your worry around it. You've got to feed what he did and not what you're afraid will happen. See, because I don't know about you, but if I was a parent and Jesus just raised my child from the dead, I would be stoked. But the moment he walked out the door, I would be like, what if it happens again? What if whatever got her to this point, what if that happens again? Like Jesus is not in the room now. What if this happens again? And Jesus says, no, you take responsibility for that miracle and you feed it. You feed it. And let me tell you something. If Jesus comes into your life and he works in your marriage, you better feed that relationship. If Jesus steps in and he, re he restores your passion, you better not neglect that passion. You better feed that passion. He says, you need to take responsibility for what I've done for you. See, I am concerned that often what we do is we step back and we allow God to work and then we neglect what he's done and we allow it to die a different death. Because see, Jesus could have raised this girl from the dead all he wanted, but if her, if her parents didn't feed her, she was going to die again. If her parents neglected her, she was going to die again. He, he healed her disease. He healed her sickness, but she's still got to eat. And when God does a miracle and when God does a work in your life, it's still got to be fed. And yet we so often choose to feed the worry and starve the miracle. We so often choose to feed the worry and starve the work that God has done. We've got to start feeding the work that God does in our lives and starving the worry. We have to start feeding the work and starting and starving the worry. We have to do our part. See, God works in our lives, but we can't go right back to treating what God has brought to life as though it's dead. We have to feed it. And some of you in this place this morning, you have spent more time feeding your worry than feeding what God can do. 
feeding what God has done in your life. But what we have to understand is that, that we serve a God who, who takes care of our worries, that treats them as though they are his own, and that we have to trust him. Because ultimately, worry reveals where we don't trust God. Worry reveals where we don't think he's enough. Worry reveals where we don't think he can still move. Worry reveals those moments where we say, our situation has moved beyond unhealthy and it is dead. But that is the place where Jesus shows up and works the most. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?